News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it was exciting for sure to watch Argentina win its third World Cup ever. It's first since 1986. And many people are calling this, a lot of commentators, I heard this yesterday, saying it was one of the most thrilling matches in World Cup history. Was it though? I mean, I certainly had a lot of oohs and ahs and clapping and shouting when I was watching it, but did everybody have that reaction? Well, Colin Miller is with us now, soccer analyst and color commentator for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Colin, have you recovered this morning? Good morning, Simi. It was uh, it took a bit of recovering, I have to say, right from the first kickoff to the very last penalty kick. I was just enthralled by the game. It was a, a wonderful advertisement for the football. And it's going to sound a bit daft here, Simi, but also one of the stars of this show was the referee as well, the Polish referee, because he allowed the game to flow. He made the correct decisions. Um, and, and, you know, the, these sort of things go unnoticed. I know I'm speaking about a referee in a World Cup final, but, um, you know, the, the, the refs, they play such an important part of the game and uh, they deserve a great deal of credit for the work they do. What always strikes me, Colin, about the World Cup is it comes around every four years. People get excited about it. Even people who don't regularly watch soccer start watching soccer. They watch the games. They get involved. And then do they stop? Like, I feel like a lot of people don't carry on with watching it once the World Cup is over. Yeah, no, that's changing. That's definitely changing, Simi. And, and uh People are far, far more aware of, of the, the value of football, the, the, the best sport in the world by far, uh, the most watched sport, most participated by, by a country mile. And, and now you see the young, amount of young players that are playing, even in Canada now, coming through the roof, the numbers that, that, are, uh, that are playing in the game. And, and I think you'll see a, dr- a drastic change, especially here in, in North America uh, and as well down in Mexico, of course, where there's a CONCACAF powerhouse with the fact that we are hosting or one of the hosts of the of the next World Cup. So you'll see that, uh, that value of, of staying involved in the game, the, the young players uh, coming through systems now, uh, the players playing professionally at very high levels, with high-profile players now playing for Canada. Um, I, I think you'll see, well, I, I don't think, I know that you'll see the game absolutely grow so much in this in this coming time. And the exposure now, Simi, on TV and, and of yeah. course, listen to what is is fantastic. You can basically watch any game in the world at any time on a on a television set if you have the correct uh, equipment. So it, it's wonderful to see, um, and and I think that um, the the game, this advertisement yesterday, probably the best World Cup final ever. Um, it, it was was a breathtaking game for, for so many fans. Okay, what made it so breathtaking? I think you just, you know, you get to finals. Sometimes the semifinals can be the best games because there's so much at stake to get to the final. And sometimes the finals uh, in in a lot of sports can be the disappointing game. Uh, But yesterday you just saw two heavy hitters. It took a while for France to get going. Everybody thought that it was uh, Argentina's uh, final just in regulation time because they were so far ahead of, of France uh, at that time. And then Mbappe, he kicks into gear. I mean, he scored a hat-trick yesterday for France. Um, and then all of a sudden, the wheels came off for a short time with Argentina. And uh, then you see these two heavy hitters having a real bash at each other. Uh, and it just proved to be end-to-end stuff. The, uh, you know, the, the, the Argentinian goalkeeper, Emiliano Martinez, 
was also a star. I mean, he seems to be a real character as well with his dancing antics during the penalties and so on. Yes. A real, a real character, and 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 that's what the game needs. Uh, every sport needs its characters. So, what do you think, though, when you talk about France? France certainly, of course, very heartbroken by this, but so many of their team members are so young. Yes, but a very young side, France. Uh, France they. They've got a, a host of players playing very, in, in some ways very similar to Canada, uh, where we have you know a lot of younger lads coming through our system here as well. Uh, France are in the same boat, so they're going to you know they, they sometimes what lets what has let France down is the sort of infighting uh, that has that has happened in previous World Cups. They haven't always got on the best, if you like, uh, or, uh, away from the football pitch. But that was not evident uh, during this World Cup. It seemed to be a very close-knit group. Uh, and it's difficult when you're dealing with all the egos that you're dealing with at this level of football, Simi. Uh, the manager has a, a heck of a job on their hands trying to keep everything everything focused for the country as opposed to the individual. But France, definitely, they're going to be the powerhouse uh, as, as we move forward here. Colin, don't you find, though, that when it comes to a great sporting event, which really puts it over the top, is that there is a compelling storyline that goes with it. And I feel like this one really had some compelling storylines. And I think Messi also was, was such a huge part of that. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's probably the biggest one. Simi, when Messi comes out and says that this will be his last uh, world cup final, uh, last world cup game for, for Argentina. That's a, that's a very sad occasion. And the, the romantic in the football fans throughout the world. I mean, my, even my, my son who uh, went downtown to, to watch the game at the pint yesterday with an Argentinian uh, Messi shirt on. Uh, you know, it, it was just, it, you, if you're Lionel Messi and you're lying in bed, you're dreaming of days that happened yesterday. That, that's just fantasy stuff, what happens. Uh, you know, you score a hat-trick and you score a penalty in the, in the shootout. You play such a pivotal part. But just the way he played for young players, boys and girls, to watch this young man play, there's no diving and cheating. He's, he's, he's just so talented and he plays with a smile on his face. Um, that's definitely the, the standout story for me because, uh, you know, he's almost single-handedly carried uh, Argentina on his shoulders for so long, Lionel Messi. And without a shadow of a doubt, one of the best players ever to grace a football pitch. So what was your, um, how would you rate this then, Colin? Would you say this was the best ever? Yes, I would. I would, Simi. I had my doubts at the start, and I won't get into the politics and all the, the things on the right. build-up to, to, to the cup final, of course, but the entertainment value. There were teams in every round of the game genuinely trying to win games. There wasn't in some previous World Cups where teams just sat back and hoped not to take a pasting. Every team deserves so much credit. I mean, Argentina lost against Saudi Arabia in the first round. So it just showed you how uh, crazy this World Cup was at times. And, and the players and everybody uh, deserves a great deal of credit for, for this being, for me, one of, if not the best World Cup uh, ever. Well, that's high praise. Colin, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. Colin Miller is a soccer analyst and color commentator for the Vancouver Whitecaps talking about that amazing World Cup final yesterday. Get a bit of a World Cup hangover afterwards, don't you? Even if you're not deeply a huge soccer fan, you kind of get a little hooked on the World Cup because every day there's some kind of consequential soccer game on and now all of a sudden there is not, but it was a good one. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Now, given the kind of morning it is out there right now in terms of traffic, in terms of the problems that we're having, the weather conditions, I'm guessing the commuters would probably like to hear some good news about their commute, right? Well, let's talk about that. Some, How about some updates for you on the Highway 91 and Highway 17 upgrades that have been going on? How can that impact you? Ravi Kalon joins us now, BC's Minister for Housing. Hey, how does the Minister for Housing know all about these updates? <laughs> uh, well, good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, when something's in your backyard, you like to pay really close attention to it. And, uh, and uh, again, as you highlighted, it's, uh, we've had a good milestone, and, uh, and it's actually easing congestion and, uh, and shortening the commute home for people uh, in my community and in the region as a whole. Okay, so that area I know has been worked on for some time, and we've talked about this before, the kinds of upgrades that have been going on. So what's, been, what's undertaken there? Well, it's the area between Highway 91 and 117, Highway 17, and we'll, it's the bottom of Alex Fraser, all the way connecting over the other side of the highway. And we had, uh, prior to the construction project that we announced, we had uh, multiple lights, you had a way scale, and uh, you had some turns that, you know, often trucks would flip because uh, the grade was uh, too steep. And, uh, and so we announced a $260 million project with, uh, the port of um, Vancouver and the federal government to essentially eliminate all the lights in that area so that all the traffic could be free-flowing. And the project now is just about finished. They're putting the final touches on it. And again, good news because it's totally eased the congestion. Uh, cars are now flowing. A little bit of confusion because there's a lot of changes there. But overall, I'm getting really, really positive feedback from everyone for uh, the amount of traffic easing that's happened from that project. Okay, so is it all done now? Yeah, there's just some final little touches happening, but essentially the roads, uh, as the project is going to be, are done. It's open, um, and we're just doing some final kind of cosmetic cosmetic changes around uh, the, uh, the project, but that'll have to wait for the weather to get a little bit better. Okay, what about the Highway 17 upgrades? Uh, those are all complete, complete as well, which is, uh, again, fantastic news. And, uh, you know, if you right now, people that are going through, in, in particular the trucking community, uh, because we know that there is a lot of movement coming from the port, coming into lower mainland, heading out to the Fraser Valley. Pretty much everybody is coming through that region. And again, now no more light, uh, which I know um, between three and seven every day. Uh, was a huge, huge backup. Uh, now with the overpass there, uh, that is complete as well. Okay, so we know that the like the actual highway areas seem to be doing pretty well, but what about the bridge areas? Because it seems like we've heard about nothing but problems every time it snows there. Well, every time it snows, uh, unfortunately, the, all the bridges have challenges. All the crossing points have challenges. I mean, since uh, we put the additional lane in on Alex Fraser, uh, it's actually eased a lot of traffic time for people. And, and I know that uh, during the pandemic, there was less people traveling and you could just fly through there and there was never any cars. And now that people are starting to return back to work, some of that traffic has come back, but uh, significantly less than was ever there before because now there's an extra counterful lane that's easing the congestion. And it also helps that, you know, when Port Man became toll-free, what we saw was a huge shift from people on the Patello shifting over to, uh, to uh, the bridge that barely had anybody on it. And then you saw people from Alex Fraser that could go instead to Patello. So there was a real shift that happened uh, in traffic patterns. And again, all of that helped uh, ease congestion.
Okay, so is this the end of upgrades along that project for that area now? Is this going to be like the way it will be for the next little while? This is the way it will be. And uh, again, it's uh, super positive. Uh, I'm not asking people to drive through just for fun. <laughs> but if you are not driving today, through, no, not today. Old. Yeah, not today, especially today. But uh, what you will see is, uh, you know, essentially uh, six lanes, uh, six traffic lights that were there before, all gone, traffic flowing freely. Um, again, gets our goods moving to market faster, but you know, just as important, if not more important, it gets people home at the end of the day faster. All right. Well, thanks so much for the update this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. Stay safe. This is Mornings with Simi. Santa is a very busy person, particularly at this time of year. Just think about it. All the toy requests that he has to collect, make sure that he can deliver all of these toys to the appropriate places. Uh, He's got time to show up at malls and parties. I mean, he's fast and he can do a lot of those things, but he can't be everywhere all at once. That's why Santa, of course, needs a lot of help. And there is an entire group of people who are trained to help him do that. Well, this year, our contributor, Eric Chapman, got a special phone number to call to talk to some of Santa's helpers to see how things are going as they get ready for Christmas. Today, he's talking to Santa Ed. Hi, it's Santa. Hi, Santa. It's Eric Chapman. How are you? Good, Eric. How are you? I'm doing really good. Are you getting Are you getting busy uh, about now this time of year? You know, this is the time. You better believe it. Yeah, we're busy. How long have you been uh, How long have you been helping Santa out? Well, I've been doing this since 2003. Wow. So it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, and how yeah. do how do you get into something like this? Because it seems like such a magical, fun thing. You you really got to be uh, like a a magical, fun person to get into it. You know? Well, I'll tell you that that's that's really interesting. I because what happened for me, and I thought for a short moment that I was unique, but I, a friend of mine had volunteered himself to help out Santa at a little fundraiser. He called me with a cold, you know, feeling very sick. He said, hey, can you fill in for me? And I'm thinking, oh, really? really? <laughs> and so I kind of went, you know, you know, to help out a buddy, uh, but somewhat reluctantly. And I walked into that room and fell instantly in love with it. I mean, everybody loves Santa. And, of course, Santa loves everybody. And I, I just, I, I walked out told what had become my Mrs. Claus that I'm going to be doing this every chance I get from now on. And that was back in 2003, and I've been doing it ever since. Santa, uh, is it true that you also help the elves in the off-season and the lead-up to Christmas making toys? Yeah, so, you know, and now that's shifted a little bit over the years. You know, in the beginning, it was just kind of me making stuff, and then we brought in some helpers and and all that, and now now we're finding ourselves doing deals. <laughs> you know, I'm almost like a business guy, you know, because some of this stuff we don't make up at the pole. You know, they make it at different places all over the world, like the iPhones and all the different things that so many people want nowadays. So, uh, so yeah, we 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 you know, there's a lot going on, a lot more than meets the eye, you know. Wow, what about the elves? They're year round, eh? They they never stop, do they? Have to be, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a big job, yeah. you know. So it. A lot going on. Um, and here's the thing, you know, there is an efficiency quotient up here at the pole. 
where you know everybody pays attention to what what they're responsible for. They do what they're supposed to do, and 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 it's amazing. But we're actually ahead of schedule right now. Uh, so you know, you think that we'd be super rushed right now, but you know, not, we have some responsibilities, and then you know, we know what's coming. But but we are actually right this moment ahead of schedule. So it's a it's a nice thing. Oh well, but yeah. No. The- then yeah, then everybody can you know if if you're ahead of schedule, then everybody can take their time getting their list ready to get to you when they can meet with you soon enough when that starts happening. But I wonder too, you have a big responsibility, and and, and am I correct? Am I doing the math right? If, do you check the list twice that you get and then hand it to Santa and then he checks the list twice? So is it really quadruple checked in the end? Yeah, it, it ha- you know, we have to. You know, we we have to be really careful to make sure. You know, here, let me tell you, Eric, a lot of people don't know this, that, you know, the, the, the people, we call it a naughty list, and they get cold if they're on the naughty list, but it, it's not so much that they're naughty, it's just that they are, their heart could be warmed a bit. They, they, might, they might be a little cool-hearted, right? I'm not going to say cold-hearted, but a little cool-hearted. So we give them a little piece of coal, just as a little reminder like because coal, you know, is a, a rock that actually burns. A lot of people use it to heat. They have for centuries on, on Earth. And uh, so anyway, they, they, the coal is a little metaphor for having a warmer heart. So, uh, so yeah, we want to make sure that that winds up in the right hands. And fortunately, these days, more and more people are warm-hearted. So, uh, so they have, they, the gifts are going out. By the way, Eric, I don't know if you know this, but charitable giving is at an all-time high between now and Christmas time. And what people get in the Christmas spirit. I'm very happy about that. So, uh, so we've got a lot going on right now. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's just another reminder too, Santa. This is for. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to, you know, hang out with Santa and and believe in and and all the magic. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you do. This is Santa. Santa listens to everybody, doesn't he? Of course. Yeah, we have billions of people. People don't know this, but but we have billions of people around the planet that believe in Santa, the Christmas spirit. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, what nationality, doesn't matter what religion, none of that stuff matters. What we're talking about, here's how we describe or define Christmas spirit up here. And that is love in action. Not just feeling love, but doing something about it. You know, getting that gift and giving it to somebody or donating a little bit or giving a little bit of your time. Something where you're putting your love into action. And, uh, and that's the Christmas spirit. Now, of course, that's the connection. It connects all of us worldwide, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. It is, and I think that's a beautiful way to end it, my friend. I appreciate your time today, and all the best in this coming up season. Hey, Eric. Well, thank you for all you do, and to all your listeners, and, and I want to wish them all a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> What a great Santa. What a great Santa's helper Ed was. Our thanks to our contributor Eric Chapman for doing a little research for us on the people, the army really, that is behind Santa helping him out at this time of year. And I know Eric's got some more pieces for us on that. Love to see all the people working behind the scenes on that kind of stuff, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you had enough yet? And I'm talking about the weather, of course, the snow. We certainly got a dump of snow in the last 24 hours. And guess what? There is more coming, just maybe not today. Let's get all the details on that. Jonathan Bow joins us now, Environment Canada Senior Meteorologist. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Simi. Boy, this weather sure is keeping you guys busy, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It's also been quite an exciting week. Okay. So this is good for you. When this stuff happens, it makes it exciting for you at your job. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, what do you love about it? 
Well, uh, it's just the variability of the weather. Um, it's definitely challenging, especially whenever the snow is in the forecast here for the lower mainland. And, of course, with that uh, convective uh, morning snow with the thunder snow yesterday morning, uh, that was quite the, uh, quite the start to the, uh, to, to the shift. Wait, we had, we had thunder snow yesterday? Yeah, so there were two lightning strikes reported in the uh, lower mainland here in Vancouver uh, in around 6, 6 7 a.m. And uh, just, just with that uh, uh, convective snow that moved through the, uh, the lower mainland through the morning hours and gave us that varied uh, snowfall accumulations. How rare is that to get a storm like that? Uh, in terms of actually producing the lightning uh, with the snowstorm, it is very rare here in the south coast. Uh, you just need the right ingredients of, you know, an unstable air mass. You know, same thing as, as in the summertime, you need the unstable air mass. And, of course, now we need a combination of cold temperatures so that the precipitation falls as snow rather than rain at the surface. And then so when we had that right combination yesterday morning, um, that was uh, enough to produce uh, uh, lightning. Now, Jonathan, I've been reading a lot about how so much of North America right now is getting this blast of cold weather. Is this all part of the same front or what's going on? Right. So Western Canada, uh, we're under a, a large um, Arctic air mass. And so that uh, cold, uh, Arctic cold front moved into the lower mainland uh, yesterday afternoon. So after the snow moved off, uh, we finally got the outflow uh, reaching the, uh, the coast here. And so that's uh, that's what's influencing our temperatures, and that's what's going to give us the uh, the cold, potentially record-breaking uh, uh, cold for uh, this week. Okay, you said potentially record-breaking. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so that was a little preview of the uh, the overnight low. So if you thought to, to this morning was cold at minus 8 here in Vancouver, uh, we're forecasting uh, or we're expecting it to bottom out uh, Wednesday night to Thursday morning at uh, minus 13. And so that would be uh, below the record of about minus 12. Okay, so how unusual is this weather for this time of year? Um, for December, it is uh, it is more unusual. Um, typically, when we get these uh, cold Arctic blasts, um, the more likely uh, time period to see this is kind of in January, late January into February. Okay, and you know I'm going to ask you this, Jonathan, because I know children everywhere want to know this, but <laughs> what are the chances of this white Christmas happening? So... I kind of hate to break it to the kids there, but um, with all the snow in here, we are expecting um, this the system this weekend to uh, bring in warmer air. So unfortunately, all of this will uh, uh, potentially wash away uh, this weekend when we have another uh, system come in. And this time will be a warmer, stronger uh, warm front uh, that will bring temperatures above zero. Well, that sounds messy, though. It does, yeah. So we do have to get back to, or we do have to get through two different systems, one for tonight into tomorrow, and that would definitely affect the morning commute. And then another system for the end of this week, uh, Friday into through the weekend. So before we get the rain, yes, you're right, uh, we will have the heavy snow through the lower mainland, the Fraser Valley. And then during the transition period, sometime maybe Friday night or or Saturday morning, um, there is a risk of freezing rain, especially through the valley where uh, the cold air is likely to stay a little longer. And then by the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we are expecting temperatures to rise to about 3 degrees, and then it will transition into rain. Freezing rain is the worst. Okay, let's talk about that storm tonight then. What can we expect overnight? Right, so we do have a, a weak warm front moving through. Uh, I say weak in terms of the actual temperatures because, of course, the, they're not gonna, it's not going to rise, but it is going to be packing a decent amount of moisture. And so the hardest hit will actually be uh, Victoria and the Malahat. So any listeners that are expecting to cross the Malahat uh, for tonight into tomorrow, 
Um, there will be heavy snow of up to about 20 centimeters uh, forecast by uh, Tuesday uh, about noon hour. For the lower mainland, we're seeing that uh, arrive uh, this evening to start, and it will push through the morning commute into the early afternoon. Uh, for us here in the lower mainland, about 10 to 15 centimeters. That's a lot. That's as much as we got yesterday. That is. And um, with the with the colder temperatures, uh, I guess one side benefit is that the, the type of snow that we're forecasting with this system is going to be the lighter, fluffier snow than our typical moisture-laden uh, or dense, heavy, wet snow. Okay. So essentially, we whatever road conditions, things that we're dealing with, we are going to be dealing with those for the next few days. Definitely. And the other snowstorm you talked about later in the week, what's that one bringing us? Uh, so this one, uh, so the one at the end, end of this week, um, it's going to be more of our typical winter uh, pattern, uh, a strong low-pressure system moving through for this weekend. Um, at this time, the, the timing and, and the amounts have been uh, quite uncertain, especially between uh, the different models that we've been looking at. But generally, uh, we're looking at a time frame of about Friday uh, when it will start. Um, we could see another, oof, maybe 5 to 10 centimeters um, depending on the, how quickly the uh, the temperatures warm up and how quickly we transition to rain. So obviously the, the, the numbers will be higher uh, towards the Fraser Valley uh, as they are typically slower to, to transition over to rain. Right. Jonathan, did we expect this in the winter forecast? Like this is like what, the second, third time now we've gotten snow this year. Was that something that we saw coming in our winter forecast? Well, we are on our third winter of La Nina. And typically, with a La Nina winter uh, here in the West Coast, we are uh, we do experience generally colder than normal temperatures, and general generally wetter than normal conditions. Um, so so far, it is panning out. Right, except for those dry periods that we get in the summertime. Exactly. <laughs> oh boy, lots of chances to talk to you, I'm sure. So, Jonathan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Simi. This is mornings with Simi. And just another word about that traffic situation. There are still some very messy places along Highway 1, especially the off-ramps. For instance, Grandview Highway heading westbound, very messy situation there. They had a stalled truck up there. I think they've actually, according to AM730, decided to shut that down at this point uh, because it is just getting so messy out there. We will keep you posted on how it goes. Keep it tuned in right here. Right now, though, we're going to talk about child care fees. You may have recently heard the provincial government announced a child care subsidy. It's intended to give families a break on their childcare bills. But we've also heard from a few parents who say uh, now they're being billed for other kind of opt-in fees, extra fees, things that they weren't charged for before, but now they're being charged for it now. Let's talk more about this. Joining us now is Sharon Gregson, a childcare advocate. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Simi. Have you heard of something like this happening? I have, unfortunately, and, and frankly, it's it's shocking and completely not what the the new move to $10 a day childcare is supposed to be about. Yeah, I was really surprised to hear this, too. So I'm sure for parents, they're like, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to be getting a deal here. Yeah, I think for parents, it's so disheartening that just in these difficult financial times, they see they're getting a break, that they're, the government is building a childcare system and actually delivering on their promises then they see this unethical behavior of their childcare provider. Okay, is this multiple cases you've heard about, or do you think it's fairly isolated? Well, at this point, it seems to be fairly isolated, one or two providers. But there has been some hint of this in the past, where um, providers had 
different levels of fees for supposedly different levels of quality. So at the end of the day, it's some, you know, some providers perhaps trying to make extra money off the backs of desperate parents. Is there anything a parent can do if their daycare center, their child care center suddenly says, listen, this thing you were getting before included is now going to be extra. What, what recourse do we have? Call the um, child care branch. Phone number I can provide, one eight eight number. Uh, and they need to send an email to their local NLA, their provincial member of the legislature. Um, they need to send an email to David Eby, the new premier, who's a child care advocate. This this cannot be allowed to happen. So, do you feel like we need to get? If there's other cases like this out there, you want to hear about them. Absolutely. So let the Coalition of Child Care Advocates know as well, and, and we will do our best to bring this to the attention of the new minister responsible for child care, which is Minister Grace Lohr. But absolutely, yes, I, I can't imagine that this can be allowed to happen. Right. Kind of better to nip it in the bud then. Absolutely, yes. And, and frankly, the couple of providers who are um, moving ahead with this, who've said they're going to raise their fees, they're giving the, um, providers a bad name, right? They're making it look like all providers would want to do something like that, and that's not the case. Right. So how would you say that the paperwork has been? What is the kind of bureaucratic red tape to get this subsidy for parents? Well, that's been the beauty of it, that there hasn't been a lot of red tape, that for child care providers and, and 96% of those who are eligible are participating uh, in this new system, and they actually also get some administrative top-up dollars to help handle the extra bit of paperwork that's required to receive these public dollars and pass on the savings. So when I talk to many, many, many providers, they don't think of it as onerous, and it's part of receiving public money that you have to be accountable for it and, and say who is enrolled in your program and what your fees are. That's not, that's not unreasonable. Right. So other than complaining then, Sharon, to your MLA or you know, to politicians, is there any recourse? Like, is the daycare actually allowed to do this? At this point, it seems they're not allowed to. The, the rule is when you accept this new public money, if you're a child care provider, that you will only put your fees up a maximum of 3% according to your regional average in a year. And so having a uh, a fee jump where you're suddenly charging $260 a month for lunch that you didn't before or $150 a month to have access to a camera that you didn't pay for before. This seems to be outside of the spirit of the contract. Right. And that's some of the charges that we heard about, aren't they? Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. How are parents feeling about this? Well, this is how we found out about it, because parents went onto social media to say, hey, this seems really unethical and terrible news. Is anybody else experiencing it? And so um, other parents weighed in and most said, no, they're not. Right. So once again, then, Sharon, though, if a, if a parent out there knows of a daycare center where they are kind of having to deal with these extra charges, what should they do? They should contact the Coalition of Child Care Advocates and let us know, and um, we, we're easy to find on the internet. And they should contact their local MLA. And again, that's pretty easy to find online. All right. We will definitely tell them to do that. Sharon, thank you. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye you, now. You too. That's Sharon Gregson, Child Care Advocate. 
This is Mornings with Simi. You know, that is a fun song. And you know what else is fun these days? For a lot of people, riding e-scooters are fun because that also explains why they have become so incredibly popular. Sure, there's convenience, there's ease of use, there's the cost, but researchers have actually been looking into this and they believe that the kind of secret sauce to what makes these e-scooters so popular is that they are just fun actually. So Carly Nygaard-Peterson joins us now, a BCAA Senior Marketing Manager for Evo Car Share and a doctoral candidate in Royal Roads University's Doctor of Business Administration program. Carly, thanks for being here. You're more than welcome. Happy to be here. I'm so curious as to what got you started down this path of deciding, like, what makes people ride e-scooters? Yeah, so... Um For me, being in shared mobility for nearly the last decade, um, I was actually one of the members that launched Evo Car Share in Vancouver uh, almost eight years ago, Metro Vancouver. And um, being part of that shared mobility and that sharing economy, uh, when e-scooters started popping up um, about 2017, 2018 in North America, um, BC didn't have... Uh, its pilot program that we have today. But I was looking at other markets and what I was hearing from people trying out these scooters, they were popping up uh, in LA, in Portland, on the East Coast of the of the US as well. And they were saying things like, that was so much fun. I felt like a kid again. And just being in the shared mobility space, uh, this was not typical of how people were describing the experience of how they were getting around. So that really piqued my interest. It was like, why are e-scooters different? Why, what is making uh, people say these things about their experience? And so uh, that led to a doctoral journey. I said, I have to figure this out. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's quite the doctoral journey. So how do you decide yeah. to, you know, how do you frame a set of questions to get to the bottom of this? Well, I designed my study around um, kind of three main components. So the first component was um, I had people take a transit diary. So every time they left the house, um, regardless of if it was on an e-scooter, in a car, walking, all of that stuff. They they documented it and they documented uh, pictures, videos, how they were feeling. So I got really the landscape of how they were making decisions. And then I actually hopped on an e-scooter and followed them around. I had a GoPro. Um, I would ask them questions in the moment, why they chose to do certain things. So I was observing them. I was um, asking in-depth questions. And uh, just understanding the things that maybe they couldn't articulate as well. So I think it was really important to observe them. So it wasn't just asking the questions. Was there anything that you could put your finger on in your research about why, say, a scooter was more enjoyable than riding transit? Was it more access to fresh air? Was it more control? Like, what was it? It was it was both of those things. It was this sense of freedom. So a lot of participants talked about being able to go where they want, when they wanted. It was sensory so that it was being outdoors, but it was that wind in their hair. It was being able to go down routes they wouldn't normally take. So um, destinations that may be a little bit too far to go on foot, a route you wouldn't take in a car. And having that discovery or that rediscovery of their city um, 
a few people called it meditative or it was very chill. They were able to, to dawdle. It's like, I love a good dawdle, whereas other forms of transportation <laughs> were A to B, right? It was very, right. um, yeah. So people almost feel like a bit like a kid again with this, right? The options that open up to them. Absolutely. Um, there's a sense of nostalgia. Like we all had kick scooters or skateboards maybe when we were a kid, but there's also this sense of just the type of fun you had when you were a kid. I had participants kind of share, you know, this brings that little bit of joy or that little bit of break in, in sort of the work of life. Um, so it was that kind of break from, from ordinary, if you will. Right. So here's what I wonder then about that, Carly, is, yeah, sure, it's fun and people want to try it out and they want to check that out. But is it something they can make a habit of? And if they make a habit of using it, does it become less fun? Um, I think there's an element of that. I think uh, the novelty of it does wear off. But the what is emerging from my research, at least, is that there is still this sense of exhilaration um, being outside. So, so the habit um, of using micromobility and specifically e-scooters, you may have some of that initial novelty wear off, but um, there is still, I think, a little bit of that uh, nostalgia or, or that wind in your hair that keep people coming back and actually using it for more, you know, I'm going to do an errand, right. but I'm going to have fun doing it. Are there lessons here then, Carly, for the governments or the organizations that set up these e-scooters, these programs for people to use? Absolutely. I think um, from the operator's point of view, it's understanding um, that entry point for people. So a lot of times um, people's first rides are usually with other people. Uh, So understanding, okay, what features can we introduce into the service um, to enable trial and, and entry into into e-scooter use for other um, purposes. So we've seen things like uh, real-time location sharing, so the dispersed nature of, of vehicles, uh, especially in a shared program, would allow people to meet up. Um, similarly, we have um, sort of a group ride functionality. So this is really common on Lime or, or some of the other um, providers in BC. So you can, I can, you know, have you on my ride. You don't have to sign up for the service. It really enables that instant sort of connection. Um, So I think from an operator standpoint, understanding what the entry point is and enabling that social, that fun factor. Um, From a municipality's point of view, it's really going to be enabling infrastructure and, and the policies and the regulations, which I think are a little bit behind, um, right now to to make everybody safe, but everybody um, really have that access. Right. Have we, have we reached that tipping point yet, though, where we do get those rules and regulations put in place? Are enough people using them to make that happen? Um, I think it depends on the city. I think um, BC's pilot program, we're seeing a number of, of more cities sign on to pilot these programs to allow people either their personal e-scooters or shared providers into the market. So I think the demand is certainly there. I think the use um, will come. Uh, we're fairly immature in the Metro Vancouver area and the Okanagan right now, um, but we will absolutely, I think, see that. And 
there's a lot of learnings to be had um, across the different cities. Everybody's kind of approaching it a little bit differently. So, for example, Kelowna has restrictions on, you know, what time you can maybe use e-scooters in the downtown core to cut down on some uh, safety behaviors or things like that. So I think there's a lot of learning. So it, we're still kind of figuring it out. But um, I think I think the demand is certainly there. Well, you certainly have more work to do then, it sounds like, Carly. So listen, thanks very much for your time. You You're welcome. That's Carly Nygaard-Peterson, who's a BCAA Senior Marketing Manager for Evo CarShare, but also a doctoral candidate in Royal Roads University's Doctor of Business Administration program. And out of curiosity, she thought, you know, the thing I'm going to examine is why is it do people love using e-scooters so much? And you've seen article after article about this in the media, right? You've heard about this, that they come to a community, company says, okay, here, we've brought some e-scooters. And they just explode in popularity. People love them. What is it about using and riding an e-scooter that makes people love them? And she said one of the things that she kept hearing over and over again from people who ride these e-scooters is phrases like, this was so much fun, I feel like a kid again. That has been a key phrase that she has heard.